0: Greetings, race community. Brent, coming in live with Derek Dixon, who is the Vice President for Advancement and the President at the New Mexico State University Foundation. Welcome, Derek.
1: Thanks, Brent. It's glad, uh, glad to be with you today.
0: Absolutely. So uh, where are you in the world today?
1: I am in beautiful Las Cruces, New Mexico. We're, uh, we're, we're near El Paso, Texas.
0: Love it. We are going to make sure to jump into your current role and your career path over time, which is more circuitous than many in this sector. And so, I'm super excited to um, just learn a little bit about what led you down this path. But I have really enjoyed getting to understand uh, the the educational path of our guests. And you've heard a bunch of episodes. You've probably heard this question, but I want to go back in time to junior year of high school. Who was that, Derek, uh, and what inspired you to go to New Mexico State University?
1: Wow, we're going into way back machine now. So I grew up in uh, in eastern New Mexico. I was born in Lubbock, Texas, and uh, and grew up just across the state line in eastern New Mexico. So I went to a really small high school called uh, Texaco High School. We uh, had a graduating class of about 28 people. So uh, it was it, it was a, it was select. I, I'll call it. Well-
0: And that was in New Mexico or in Texas?
1: It was in New Mexico, right on the, we had a railroad track and one stoplight that separated us from Farwell, Texas.
0: So the number one question I get, having gone to a high school with roughly 60 graduates in Iowa, is, did they have eight-man football? So I don't typically ask that question to anyone else, but what was the deal there?
1: That is a really good question. No, we we had a full football team. We actually won the state championship my freshman year. And uh, because the school was so small, if you played one sport, you had to play them all. So um, I also played basketball and and ran track, and I wasn't very good at any of them, but uh, they needed the bodies.
0: As a small small school kid, I can empathize with that, and congrats on the state championship. Never quite got there. So you're um, in eastern New Mexico, thinking about college. Was it a no-brainer to go to New Mexico State? Was there... Uh, other options as you were thinking through things?
1: You know, I think I probably did send my application to a few places. I remember just on a whim, you know, sending it to to Harvard and Texas A&M and, you know, just a few schools I'd heard of, you know, growing up in uh, eastern New Mexico. I didn't really know a whole lot uh, outside the area. I'd traveled a little bit at that point, but not much. Um, at this point, I've been to almost 50 different countries. And so it feels like a lot of a lot's passed, a lot of water under the bridge since then. But at that point, my dad and my granddad had both worked for New Mexico State University for a combined uh, about 90 years or so, and uh, so this was this was home for us. I spent a lot of time in the summers doing uh, activities. I was in 4-H and FFA, and we would do stuff on the New Mexico State University campus, and Felt very much at home here. And then the decision maker, though, um, I ended up becoming an economist when I went through school. So I guess I was uh, uh, meant to be from high school was the New Mexico lottery scholarship. And it it actually paid um, most of our costs of attending college. And then I, I got an academic scholarship that paid the rest of it. So got out of school debt free. And that was pretty important to a small town kid with no money.
0: I love it, and it's not, uh, it, it's frankly common for our guests to have some early exposure to philanthropy, and you probably didn't use that word or really understand how it all worked, but, um, or maybe you did. I mean, what was your experience as a scholarship yeah. um, recipient? Did you understand what that meant? Did you feel connected to to the yeah, support?
1: I, I absolutely did. I I, uh, I was fortunate enough to be selected for the uh, President's Associate Scholarship at New Mexico State, which is the, uh, uh, it, it's kind of the highest level scholarship that our foundation provides. It's still going today. And we had a lot of activity, a lot of opportunity to meet our donors. And so we would do events at donors' homes, and, and they would meet with us throughout the year. And so it was pretty evident to me early on um, that, you know, multiple people had invested in my education. So that, I, I didn't really, you know, think it was going to be a career at that point, but I think I was familiar.
0: Yeah. And so uh, while you're at New Mexico State, you're pursuing uh, the economics focus, um, but quickly uh, decided to pursue a master's degree. Was that um, something that you stumbled upon along the way or what was the catalyst to explore sort of continuing ed right out of your uh, degree program?
1: Yeah, my, my wife and I both went to get our master's and uh, and we thought, uh, you know, if we could get into a program that we were interested in, it might be easier just to go and do that uh, rather than going out and working and trying to come back to school. And uh, so we were both accepted to some programs uh, different places, but Texas A&M was the only place that we could both be in the same school at the same time. And uh, so we we went from... New Mexico State to Texas A and M. We didn't even have to change our 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 colors or our mascot. They're both the Aggies, both uh, both maroon and uh, so we just went down the road a little ways and did our masters, and it was it it was great. It allowed us to uh, uh, to get that chapter of our lives over with before we went out and started working for a living.
0: Well, same colors, same mascot, but very different places. How would you describe the New Mexico State? Undergrad experience uh, in a sentence, and how would you describe AM and uh, in a sentence?
1: Yeah, so New Mexico State was my, is definitely a much smaller school. Uh, felt like uh, felt like home. Felt like family. Uh, I had my family right down the road, so I had a great support network. My wife grew up just right, uh, maybe an hour uh, from Las Cruces, and so she had her family here, and it was uh, it was great. It was a good transition into our adult lives. Um, we also, my wife and I have, have had, uh, business and family businesses, uh, our entire lives. So we started a business together before we even got married. We were DJing dances and mowing lawns in, uh, in Las Cruces to help pay for school. And at so the it same was, time,
0: uh, were you at doing the those same things? time? Yeah. Yeah. DJing dances and mowing lawns. That is a unique combo. Uh, I got to know, you know, any like favorite memory from, lawn mowing, and then favorite memory from DJing a dance in that order?
1: Yeah, my favorite memory from mowing lawns was um, you got to get a master's degree and get a good job because I don't want to be doing this my whole life. Uh, my favorite memory from DJing dances was uh, was getting to play uh, the weddings for our friends uh, that we went to school with that were getting married. It was pretty cool to get to do that. And uh, so there were, there which were several of, your of those. Friends,
0: which of your friends had the best wedding party? It's okay. You can share <laughs> not even going to go there. <laughs> there was a lot yep. of them.
1: Yeah. Yep. a yep. was just a massive big school. It was, you know, for the two, two kids from New Mexico, it was a shining city on a Hill. Uh, it was, uh, it was wonderful. It was a great experience. Uh, we ended up living there for about 18 years and raising our kids there for most of their childhood. And it was a, a great place to live. Being at two land grant universities, they were very similar as far as their uh, their history, their mission, um, the alumni base was was very similar, and so we felt like we were at home there also.
0: And you graduated uh, from the master's program in 2000 at the peak of the dot-com boom. What was that time like, and um, what was your path out of A&M?
1: <laughs> it, it was awesome, Brent. We, uh, uh, I got to tell you a quick story. A, a buddy and I um, wrote a, we, we did a, a kind of a directed studies class our last year in school, and we were We were studying internet based voting it was this was before the Bush war election and the hanging Chads and all that kind of stuff, and so we both wanted to go into high tech we wanted to go into a startup just like everybody did at that time and so we thought, well, we're getting our degrees in public administration. What can we do you know that would combine public administration with some you know something in high tech that might be able to make a difference and we thought, well, voting, everybody's using these stupid punch cards. And so we wrote a paper and ended up uh, presenting to the Democratic National Committee. And, and we had the paper was published in, uh, in Portuguese in Brazil. And it made, it made quite a splash. So we both ended up going to work in that industry. I went up to Seattle and joined a small startup. Uh, my buddy went to work for what uh, eventually became Accenture um, Consulting, doing the same area. But we did a trip together to the Bay Area. And this would have been the summer of 1999. So between our two years of our program. And I remember we were out there interviewing for jobs and we had, uh, you know, we had some good interviews. We were going to be the next tech moguls, right? So I remember going into this converted uh, shopping center and uh, we walked into this place and my, my buddy had a friend from high school that worked there. She was, I think, the 16th hire or something like that. And we walked in, we thought, this is pretty cool. Everybody's got these cots around, they're sleeping under their desk. The deli section over in the corner has a has a chef cooking meals for them and and so we met and we did our thing. And I remember walking out the door and we looked at each other. We're like, that was pretty cool, but this place will never make it. It's a search engine. I mean, you know, how's a search engine going to make any money? It was Google and they had maybe 120 employees at that time. So I don't have the best decision making in, in, in the world, but that's, you know, that's what led me here.
0: It's incredible. It's, I mean, to think about having a window into something, you know, in a firsthand capacity. Uh, but look, there were a lot of really smart people who agreed exactly with your assessment, and that's part of what makes this uh, all so, so exciting. Um, but ultimately, it was the tech path that you uh, pursued, and uh, you know, timing matters, and it was an interesting time.
1: That sure was. Yeah, our company uh, grew really rapidly for a couple of years, and then uh, and and then didn't. You know, when the tech bubble burst and 9/11 happened, um, Seattle was airplanes and computers, and neither one of those were going very well. And I remember we, uh, you know, we called up a former professor uh, here at New Mexico State, um, or I I called him up and I said, uh, you know, Dr. Gorman, I I worked for this guy while while I was a student in uh, ag economics, and I said, Dr. Gorman, I'm I'm probably going to need a job. do you have any idea of something that I could do? And he was um, executive director of a nonprofit organization that I'd been a member of as a student. Uh, we actually, I think my senior year in college went to Indonesia together. It was my first trip outside the country. And he said, yeah, you know this organization that you were a part of, uh, was called the International Food and Agribusiness um, Management Association, it's a mouthful. Uh, they're looking for, a, uh, for an executive director. Um, he was kind of in a board role. And he said, they're looking for a full time executive director. Would you be interested? And it was based at Texas A&M. Um, I've been familiar with this organization. I was like, sure. I don't have anything else to do. I don't know much about running a nonprofit, but I'll I'll try it. And he said, well, there's one catch They're, uh, they're uh, their balance. sheet. They're insolvent. Their balance sheet has a negative fifty thousand dollar balance. And like, well, <laughs> OK, that's a challenge. And so I took that job and stayed there for about six years and traveled the world, and it was, it was Very. a fascinating job and I fell in love.
0: Coming out of the tech boom, a negative negative fifty thousand dollars balance wasn't so bad, really. Didn't seem that bad. <laughs> tech boom, yeah. So um, you're pretty young at this point, in you know, right right out of you know a couple of years out of your master's program. That's a big role to step into, um, and you know, in an executive director capacity, you know, typically you're marketing your sales your donor uh, engagement your getting the payroll out i mean there's a lot of yeah. things you probably hadn't done before that you had to figure out in that role
1: No, that's right and it was a one person shop so i had to do it all you know and and thankfully you know through some of these um, little family businesses that my wife and i had continued you know through the years we we kind of knew how to how to run a you know a simple payroll and how to advertise and that sort of thing and uh, I knew a lot of these people. Uh, I'd attended their conferences before, and so they were they they were familiar. They were just happy to have somebody there to do the work, and uh, and it was great. It was a, it was a good opportunity to get involved in in management of a nonprofit. I got to wear all the hats, so I was I was the accountant. Um, I was the bookkeeper. I was doing, uh, you know, sales and marketing and and raising sponsorship money and planning events and the whole nine yards. So I got exposed to a lot of things really early. And I've used bits and pieces of those throughout the rest of my career. And it was I I can't think of a better start uh, completely accidentally, you know, for somebody that wanted to be in this industry.
0: And you have, uh, especially at that point in your career, you were in uh, the College Station area you worked for a few different nonprofits, you got hooked in the space. Um, But also in doing that, I'm sure you, you know, when you're serving in those roles in a, you know, somewhat smaller community, you must kind of get to know everybody who would be in a donor capacity. And you probably ran into some of the same donors at different nonprofits. I'm curious to know a little bit about the you know, competitive dynamic, if you will, because oftentimes we talk in higher ed advancement. Well, we're all friends. We're not really competing with one another. But, in, you know, in a certain regard, local nonprofits are, even if that isn't what they come today, uh, come to work every day thinking about.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. It's very perceptive. Um, I ran a, a nonprofit health clinic for a number of years. Uh, when I left the, uh, the International Food and Business Management Association. I uh, I took over as executive director of a of a, of a relatively small uh, nonprofit health clinic. We were taking care of of chronic uh, uninsured chronic disease patients. Lots of times they'd end up in the emergency room, and the emergency room would would uh, refer them to us as kind of their uh, their stable source of primary care since they had no other options. And we'd try to keep them stabilized and out of the hospital is basically our mission. And so it was a fantastic place. Um, I spent uh, a few years there. I also uh, ran the community foundation in our in our community for a for a number of years. And it was really small Uh, when I took over. I think we had just under a million dollars of assets under management. And so that was um, related, but it was more estate planning and major gifts and, and that sort of thing. The health clinic was more. You know galas and 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 cards at christmas time and and very much retail fundraising we were a united way organization and so I got uh, exposed to a lot of different grant writing we did a ton of grant writing too so I got exposed to just about every way that you could possibly raise money um in a in a community nonprofit and it wasn't very competitive we were uh we had united way conferences where all of the different nonprofits in town that were supported by United way would get together on a monthly basis and you know, we got to know each other. We talked about best practices. It felt a lot like um, this business now where I can call up, uh, uh, you know, my friends at Kansas State or at A&M and, and Auburn and everybody shares ideas with each other. It felt very much the same. And I think the community members in a community like that, they're pretty clear about, you know, what they care about and what they're going to support. And if if you're not in that group, then that's that's fine. But they'll tell their friends about you.
0: Tell me a little bit about health for all, because when I think about the mission there of providing primary health care to low income, uninsured patients, it's almost like, in a certain regard, the opposite of higher education, where higher education, very broad, you've got an existing constituency with alumni, friends, athletics, fans, and so forth. Um, This is one community, one very specific cause. But it also means that your constituency could theoretically be anyone anywhere, realistically, um, or at least anyone in the area who, you know, because who doesn't sort of when you when you say that sentence, it's hard to say, no, that's not something I would care about. But at the same time, where do you focus in building a constituency for something that is is so specific?
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a really good question. And I'd I'd been exposed to that uh nonprofit organization as a student when I was, you know, didn't have health insurance. And I remember, you know, needing a doctor at one point or 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 Nikki did one or the other, and we called up Health for All, you know, we found like, well, you can go here and get some, you know, a free consultation, and I did. And it was uh, it was New Mexico State. I'm sorry. It was uh, Texas A and M nursing students, and uh, and eventually pharmacy students, and and students that were in the medical residency program that largely staffed it. And for a lot of them, it was their first experience with real life patients. You know, they they got to put to, to practice in a in a clinical setting what they were learning in their in their classroom. And so it was a fantastic partnership with the university. But to build, you know, our I started out you know, thinking of it as a business, like I have at all the nonprofits I've been at, I said, well, you know, who's this benefiting? And uh, we put together a, 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 basically a business proposal for the local hospitals, uh, showing them how much money we saved them. And we were able to take our patient records and, and uh, compare it to their patient records and say, you know, this person before they came to Health for All had ended up in your emergency room six times in the last three months. They can put a number to that right after they started coming to health for all they didn't go back to your emergency or they went to your emergency room one time in the next six months you know and so it was very easy for these hospitals to uh to to realize the value of our organization so the majority of the money came from there we also wrote a grant to the walmart foundation and asked them for a large amount of money because our customers shopped at walmart and if they were healthy and they were able to hold a stable job and earn money they're going to spend more money at walmart so I, I approached it from a from a business standpoint, and I went out and made business deals with major uh local foundations and, and, and businesses that could see a reason uh from a profit and loss standpoint to support to support our organization. And then we did all the retail stuff. We came up with really fun fundraising events and we did uh really creative direct mail stuff. And, and that, that's kind of how we went about our business. We, I, I hired students from, uh, from Texas A&M to write grants for me, and they'd come in in the summer, and I think we'd crank out 70 or 80 grants,
0: uh, requests to foundations over the summer. So we were scrappy. So during this entire period, your connection to A&M remained strong, given that you're both in the community, and I'm sure constantly interfacing with different members uh, of the community who work uh, on campus. Uh, but ultimately, going and, and uh, stepping up to do development at a and um, as part of a large organization that's incredibly successful and mature is sort of the opposite of super scrappy, you know, executive director kind of having to do it all. So was that a tough decision? Was it just a, a stage of life thing? I mean, what, 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 what do you reflect on as you made that choice? And uh, during that experience,
1: oh man, it was uh, it was it it was not a hard decision at the time. Uh, let me Back up just a second. I, I was running the community foundation first when I left the university, the nonprofit. I, I went and I took over as president of the local community foundation. I took that job about two months before Lehman Brothers failed, and that set off the whole you know meltdown in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, my wife and I at that point. Uh, brilliant timing. Once again, uh, we're in the middle of a real estate development with with some friends. And so we, uh, you know, it's a bad time to be in the housing business uh, with the housing boom crashing down. And so we were doing that um, on the side. I was running the community foundation and we went into what we called sustainability mode, which meant I went 25% with the community foundation trying to keep the wheels on, but help it survive because we didn't know how long this thing was going to last. And one of my board members was also a board member at Health for All. So she got me the job there. So I was working both. I was running both of these nonprofits at the same time for about three years. And so reporting to two different boards, trying to cut. I, we, all, we also had a business cutting trees. So I, we started this tree removal business and I was hiring firefighters and EMTs to cut trees. So in the evening after work, I'd go out and do sales and you know, for the tree business. So when I got the call from A&M, um, it was like, a lifeline. I'd, I'd been burning the candle at both ends and in the middle, you know, for several years, just trying to keep my, you know, keep my family fed and and keep the wheels on on these two nonprofits. And so when I got the call from a and I was like, you mean I can come and just raise money? I can come and just work in the College of Engineering and travel and meet donors and raise money. And I don't have to report to boards and I don't have to do bookkeeping. And I can, you know, and so yeah, it was the best decision I ever made. And I didn't know at the time that it would turn out to be a career. Um, and it hasn't been that long ago. This was probably in, uh, you know, 2009 or so, I believe. Uh, no, it was in 2012. It wasn't that long ago that I entered higher education fundraising. But having all those experiences from the past, I think. Uh, really kind of opened up the world. And it gave me an opportunity to, uh, to go from just being a fundraiser to having some management opportunities and, and now do this.
0: Well, I'm not sure when to, to talk about this. Maybe now is the time. You've, you've already hinted at it. But, um, you know, ultimately, exec director roles, you know, two of them at the same time, and you've got multiple side hustles before they call them side hustles. Um, you weren't afraid to take on a challenge, that's for sure. But when you think about, um, I, I, I am curious a little bit just to, uh, you know, as it relates to some of the entrepreneurial endeavors you've, you've done on the side with your wife or friends and others, um, how do you, you know, how do you think about that as being maybe a helpful part of your skill set as you've settled into a development leadership roles?
1: Well, I think uh, I think it helped a lot understanding how business works, how private business works. And, you know, you know this when you have people relying on you for, you know, for their uh, for their income and to feed their family and and pay for their mortgage and all that kind of stuff. It's a different level of, of responsibility. And so I think, you know, in every role that I've taken on, when I have people that. Rely on me in that way. I want to make sure that the business works and that the business part of the nonprofit is sustainable. Uh, I've always kind of used the saying, you know, no, no money, no mission. If we don't, you know, if we can't pay the bills, if we're not profitable as a nonprofit, uh, you know, we're not sustainable over the long run, and we certainly can't, uh, we, we certainly can't scale and grow uh, the way that most organizations want to do over time. And so I've, I've approached every one of these roles from very much a, a business standpoint. I want to understand the financials. I want to know how the accounting systems work. I want to make sure that our, our P&L statement is, is healthy and, and you know, cut expenses if we need to. Um, want to make sure that our balance sheet looks good. And so I kind of approach it as a business, um, uh, you know, from a business standpoint and then the fundraising stuff is just what's fun, you know, getting to travel and meet with donors and, and ask for gifts and, and match up, you know, passions with needs. And that's the, that's the gravy on top.
0: Now you've done fundraising in the uh, nonprofit context, but when you think about some of the donor relationships that you built at A&M, or maybe some of the gifts that you were involved with where you really got to see it from um, initiation through close do any specific gifts stand out as being, um, uh, just moments you really uh, value. Yeah, I mean, one that
1: I always think back on. It was uh, it, it was awesome because it was my very first gift uh, fundraising in in a, in the higher ed space. And I was walking down the hall one day. I was I was assigned to the College of Engineering. And uh, and our our shop was divided out by departments. So I was given responsibility for a couple of departments. And I think that day I was in the nuclear engineering department and I had an office there and I was walking down the hall and one of the staff members stepped out and said, hey, and, and she said, aren't you the new development guy? I'm like, yeah, this was maybe my first week. And she said, I wanna start a scholarship. Can you help me with that? and uh it's like yeah i think i can um I'll, i may have to ask some questions of, of some of my colleagues but i think i can and this lady had been a uh, a, a student counselor you know uh, advisor for students for her career and uh so she had helped select scholarship awardees and and she had uh, helped counsel these students to keep their GPA up, to keep their scholarship, all, all this kind of stuff. So she knew exactly what she wanted to do. But she wanted her own scholarship, and that was just a, a dream of hers. Um, she had some uh, uh, and finally put together the money to be able to fund it. And um, if, you know, it was a twenty-five thousand dollars endowed scholarship. It's one of those that you know you do on a weekly basis anymore. But uh, boy, it was impactful for me. And I know it made it it, it. it probably still to this day. She she loves that scholarship. I'm sure.
0: Well, I, I doubt all the gifts come in that easy where they chase you down and say, hey, where can I uh, send the money?
1: Not very often.
0: <laughs> Love it. So you went from maybe looking at this as just a bit of a reprieve during such a tumultuous time in the broader economy, everything you're navigating in, in the sort of resource-constrained nonprofit realm to really hitting your stride at A&M. Uh, but then ultimately after... What had been a really long time in the area, uh, you made the move to to Auburn in a leadership role, which could not have been easy for you and your family, given all the ties that you'd built in town.
1: Yeah, probably not. Our kids were at the age where we decided we're either going to do this or we're going to stay here you know for a while. I, I think my daughter was just going into junior high, and my son was still in elementary school and we really didn't want to, uh, you know, move them in the middle of, of high school, which is interesting given what's happened over the last couple of years. But, uh, you know, we had we had best intentions at heart. So, um, yeah, Auburn was uh, was a great opportunity for me to step up into a, a pretty big time management role. I got to work for the best fundraising dean I've ever met in my life. I got, got to work with Jane Parker, who I, I'm pretty sure you you know from Auburn. I have a, a really good team there Um the, the engineering team that I got to manage is amazing. It's the best group of it. They're awesome. And uh, best group of fundraisers that I've ever worked with. And they, um, they taught me a lot. Um, It was a, it was a great opportunity. Uh, We raised a lot of money. We had a lot of fun. I met a lot of really great people up there. And uh, it was, it was definitely, it was as hard to leave Auburn. As it was to leave A and M for the kids, it was it was fine. They were they they learned some resilience. I think we funded the scholarship at Auburn, and we met our scholarship student at a at a at a banquet one night. And my daughter was sitting next to her, and this uh, student I think she'd moved to Auburn from Dallas, and so she was on our <clears throat> on our scholarship. And she turns to my daughter and says, "You're really lucky." And you know, my daughter is still in this sulking mood about having to leave all her friends and start over. And she's like, what are you talking about? She said, well, you've already done it. You've proven to yourself that you can, you can move and you can start over. College is, is going to be so easy for you, you know? And she talked about how it wasn't that way for her. And it's, uh, it was one of those moments that I was like, all right, maybe this will turn out okay, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's really neat to yeah. see the impact of, of, of your gift, but also working in that capacity and being able to share a yeah. window um, you know, into that world for your daughter. I mean, that's, yeah. that's huge. And, you know, when you think about Auburn, obviously an incredibly passionate community, um, it's just amazing to, to get exposure to that world, just, you know, like A&M in a different capacity, but, um, any like peak moments when you think about the, the time at Auburn? Oh gosh, so many peak moments. Um,
1: you know, I, I loved every meeting I ever had with my Dean. It was, uh, we worked really well together and we started a, a group. Tell, me, um, tell but, me more
0: about that relationship because it can, be, it can be the catalyst for success and it can yeah. derail careers if you don't get it right. And so even in taking the job, did you feel that level of connectivity? I mean, what advice would you have to other fundraisers who, I don't know, maybe are, are going to have to partner with the dean but aren't sure of what that dynamic will be like?
1: Yeah, no, I've, I would, uh, after that experience, I would never take another job without making sure that the, that my academic partner was that, you know, that same type of, of committed. Um, no, I was in an airport interview in the Atlanta airport and, uh, you know, had gone through the gauntlet of meeting, you know, 15 different people and whole day of interviews. Mm-hmm. And then I sat down with the dean and we we hit it off right off the bat. He explained his uh, his vision for the future of the college, uh, he did it in a way that I got excited about it, you know, and I, I was like, this guy, you send him down in front of donors, he's a rock star. And, uh, and, and he talked about, uh, uh, you know, the relationship he wanted to have with his, with his uh, chief development officer and, and the types of things that he wanted to accomplish with me. And I, I just, I was like, yeah, uh, this is going to be great. And then as we worked together, it was like, just, you know, we would bounce ideas off each other. We would talk about, uh know. Uh, pros and cons of different approaches. Um, We would talk a lot of high-level strategy. One of the things he wanted to do, Auburn Engineering is really, really good. They're they're a lot better than they get credit for in the rankings. Um, So they wanted to be a top 20 engineering school. And, and, you know, with everything that you can imagine that goes into that, you know, to pass really good schools, we were in the mid-30s. So to climb 15 spots at the top of the list when there's, you know, 450 engineering programs in this country is hard to do. And so we talked a lot about what that was going to take, and we ended up working together to set up a group we called the Strategic Leadership Team, started out as being 12 couples of our principal gift donors for the college, and we brought them together, the the donor that had named the college, his name was Samuel Ginn, a guy out of California, we asked him if he would host this group, and when, when Sam Ginn called, people would answer the phone, you know, and... Uh, Tim Cook was one of our grads at Apple. You know, we we had some pretty influential folks. I, I was going to
0: ask if you got to tell Tim Cook your your Google story or not. I don't think I shared that one with him, but I did have to borrow an Apple Watch from a friend when I went out
1: to visit him the first time. So now I've got my own. So, yeah, but we put this group, this strategic leadership team together and this group of 12 people um, over the time that I was there gave almost $100 million uh, to, to seed what was kind of an interim campaign to raise, uh, to raise some money to try to become a top 20 engineering program. And uh, that, was, that was just a heck of a lot of fun. We got to basically plan our own little campaign. We were outside of Auburn's uh, comprehensive campaign, and it had ended at that point. And we're given a lot of latitude to be creative and, uh, and go out and do some really, really cool stuff. And some of those donors, they'll be, they'll be friends for
0: life. That's super neat, and I'm sure it's a chance to reconnect with your uh, tech roots, as, as you were saying. Yeah. So um, you left Auburn at such an interesting time, and I don't know if you had whispers or inklings of what the pandemic might look like, but there are a lot of folks that dealt with Transitions and in leaders that transitioned during the time, but a few timed it like you did. And so, just tell me a little bit about early 2020 uh, for you and your family, uh, yeah. and just kind of how things unfolded.
1: Yeah, no, it was crazy. I'd been interviewing for a little while. i i got a I got a call uh, from a from a school that was really interesting to me from a kind of a personal historical standpoint. Back in October of of uh, twenty nineteen. and so I kind of started interviewing. I let my my dean and and uh, and Jane and some others know that i was I was going through this process. I'd been offered you know the opportunity to interview for a position that that would be really hard for me to to turn down. They were great mentors and and friends at that time. and so I was going through that process. and in um, in december, january, uh, you know twenty uh, twenty nineteen, january twenty twenty, um, these two things kind of dovetailed the New Mexico State University position came up right at the end of this process so i was thinking I was thinking I was going to Boston right, and my family had done a family trip up there we were We were prepared to make this move to the northeast and all of a sudden this thing comes up and it it was uh it was a whirlwind right at the end. And so over, over uh, the holidays, 2019, 2020, we were visiting New Mexico and Boston trying to figure out which direction to go. Got both offers in the same week. And so we we had to make this really hard decision. But I ended up accepting this NMSU job, you know, January of 2020. So no, we had no idea. You know, I, I think maybe, you know, COVID was showing up in some stuff, but everybody thought it was, uh, you know, going to stay in China or whatever. My daughter and I went on a trip to Africa together in February, and and on our way back, I remember there were thermal scanners in the airport where they were, you know, scanning the whole crowd and seeing if anybody popped up looking like they had a fever, Um, but it still wasn't really real. You know, we didn't think this was going to impact things, but my first day here at NMSU was April 1st, so it was in full swing. We'd already uh, made the decision as as a university to go remote. And so I came here um, fully remote in April of 2020. I didn't meet any of my staff in person for a long time. So it was, it was onboarding and managing via, uh, via Zoom. Um, thank God Zoom existed, right? I mean, that was the, the technology that existed at the time at least made it possible. And I'm, I'm still, uh, we're, we're back in person now, but I'm, I'm still meeting
0: people for the first time in person. It was quite a ride. Derek, I want to dive into your reflections and lessons learned over the last year, but you did mention that you were in Africa um, right prior to the pandemic. And I know you've done some really important work there. You also mentioned that you've now uh, gone from uh, very humble beginnings to traveling to over 50 countries. And so I'd love to just talk a little bit about the global perspective that you've uh, developed.
1: Yeah, so Travel's always kind of been a passion of mine, and when I was with the tech company up in Seattle, we were doing voting technology. It was the first generation of the software that now runs the computerized election systems that most of us vote on. So this was this was really early, and um, one of our board members was director of uh, uh, the of elections for Washington State, and another board member was secretary of state for Washington State. So these guys ran the elections uh, up there in Washington, and. Uh, the one that was director of elections he said you know i i'm a uh, election supervisor election monitor for the us state department they send us to uh, to countries around the world mostly former soviet countries and we go over and help them with their elections and he said you might want to sign up for that it give you a good perspective on how this business is done in the rest of the world so i signed up and i've been doing that now for uh, about 20 years gone um all over the world most of the uh the stands uh uh, and a lot of the uh, Kosovo, um, Belarus, you know, a lot of the former Soviet countries is where I travel to. But I go over and do election monitoring and supervision for the uh, Organization for um, Security and Cooperation in Europe. And uh, and we're State Department uh, seconded employees while we're over there. And it's just a fascinating experience, a great way to travel the world. And and so I kind of had a passion for that. We were Any, in college uh... stations.
0: Uh, yeah I was gonna say any crazy experiences that you can share uh, uh, from those journeys or just smooth sailing through all the stands?
1: Yeah, so I was in uh, in Kosovo for their first election as a as an independent country. Um, that was interesting. I had to travel with a uh, with the German military unit. We had to get trained on on landmine safety and uh, and I remember that it was a local election so mayors and councils and that sort of thing. And there was a lot of assassinations going on. It was basically, you know, the last person left alive is going to, you know, run the place. Um, so it was it, it was a little hairy. It, it was still, you know, more or less kind of a war zone over there at the time. And um, so, you know, that one was interesting. I was in uh, uh, Ukraine for the Orange Revolution, uh, which was it felt like a pivotal moment in history. Uh, so, you know, some of those some of those things will stick with me for a long time. And I've, I've met. When, when you're doing this, they partner you up with another election monitor from a different country, and you spend about ten days together. Uh, you also have a driver and interpreter that are that are locals, and a lot of those folks that were my partners will be, you know, again, friends for life. It's uh, it,
0: it, it's quite an experience. Well, thank you for sharing. I, I didn't um, have any appreciation for all of that work, and um, it's interesting because you know technology and and uh, the impact. Uh, on society uh, stands out as being something you were interested in early on. And I know you still share that interest. And I know you mentioned already, but um, you've basically been you know, one of the leaders who's had to start and build uh, your relationships from Zoom for the most part. And uh, obviously that's evolved here uh, over the last few months. But Um, What was that like? And, uh, you know, what were the highlights and the challenges of maybe those first six months or so?
1: Well, it wasn't too bad, actually. I was amazed how um, adaptable uh, the staff was. and I, I think we saw this everywhere. Even before I left Auburn, they were starting to kind of shut down. I remember over spring break of 2020, you know, we we went on a cruise. You know, when we left, they were still saying, well, you know, we're not going to give you a refund. It's a personal decision. But the time we got back, like we were probably the last ship to to get, to get to unload people, you know, when we got, so it was that week that the world changed. And, um, and I remember coming back from spring break and Auburn never did go back to school. It was, it was remote. And I, I was in a college of engineering. It's hard to teach engineering remote. It's a very hands-on lab based um, uh, curriculum. And they basically over a couple of weeks, period literally redefined how they teach engineering to kids, you know, and they did it very successfully. And I remember thinking at the time, we have just leaped 15, 20 years into the future overnight. Everything is different and it'll never be the same again. And, um, and I know when I got to NMSU, they had sent everybody home we didn't even have laptops for everybody. Most people were on um, obsolete desktop computers, right? And so, one of the first things we did was invested in about 30 laptops, and you know, and, and invested in some webcams and other technology. We we hadn't converted to the cloud, so we started that process. We uh, we just started investing in a lot of time and energy into this remote thing because we didn't know how long it was going to last. But everybody dived in, you know, and everybody was uh, was productive. Um, we We just kind of started out doing staff meetings on zoom and and uh i don't think it took that long before it kind of felt normal you
0: know yeah it's uh i think the resiliency and adaptability uh we all uh experience that and yeah it's amazing when you're forced right if if you're not forced to change you don't when you're forced to change it's amazing how much change can occur and Um, At the same time, you had a comment in your questionnaire that i love to talk about because it hasn't come up very often. You said, I think augmented reality will rock our world and change the industry forever. I totally agree. But I also feel like like augmented reality missed its moment because it's been worked on and talked about for so long. But the Zoom experience you and I are having right now is not that different than the Zoom experience we could have had seven years ago if we'd wanted to.
1: Yeah, I know you're right. I mean, we've been talking about it for a long time. I remember as a 4-H kid in middle school or, you know, early high school, I did a speech on virtual reality and this, this kid named Jaron Lanier, who was a student at New Mexico State University, ended up being a pioneer in virtual reality. And I I wrote a, you know, gave a speech in a competition on this thing. And here we are, you know, all these years later and it hadn't come across, you know, hadn't come along that well but you you look at the work that uh, you know Facebook and others are starting to kind of publish with with augmented reality it reminds me of the early like I'm not sure how old you are but I grew up when we had the uh, um, the Atari right and the first Nintendo and you know, yep. tech mobile all that kind of stuff it feels like we're at that point of the development of augmented virtual reality and I, I truly do believe that before too long um, you and I could feel like we're having this talk across the desk from each other uh, rather than looking at each other on
0: a, on, on on a little, you know, three inch screen on our monitor here. I I couldn't agree more. And you're making me think back. I'm pretty sure that roughly 30 years ago, Nintendo actually had some sort of headset where it was sort of like the first Oculus or something. And, you know, here we are and we're still kind of waiting. It's like that in the hoverboard, but I think we're getting closer on, uh, on, on virtual reality and, and, and some yeah. of the augmented reality, obviously, as well. But um, I, I, I do also think even in the context of remote work and do visits need to be in person and some of these conversations that have been playing out on social media that, that you know I've been a part of, um, we're viewing it as pretty binary at this point. And I do think that the virtual reality um, components have an opportunity to make it far less um, uh, black and white than maybe it feels today. Yep. Absolutely. I think it's going
1: to change our world, especially in stewardship. One of my favorite things from this last year, I had moved to New Mexico, but I still, we still have a scholarship at Auburn. And they invited us to their virtual scholarship reception. And it was, it was awesome. They had to plan two separate ones because they had so many people. You know, when we expect people for stewardship reasons to travel to our campus, or, or we have to plan a trip to travel to them. It, That's a big <laughs> ask.
0: That's a big ask. And, you know, the ability, right. The reality is every scholarship recipient that you have supported in the past that you will support in the future yeah. is now a Zoom link away. Yeah. And the friction yeah. in getting you together and the cost of yeah. planning that event and having people come and then effectively limiting it to people that could drive, yeah, you know, because not a lot of people are going to fly in for that sort of thing. I mean, what yep. a game changer yep. that is.
1: Oh, I, I think so. I think we've still got to crack the nut maybe on discovery visits and that sort of thing. I mean, but the time I spend all day on Zoom, but the last thing I want to do is talk to some fundraiser on Zoom, you know, and so I I think that has been harder, maybe. Um, it was nice to have the technology available, but I'm not sure that it was, you know, if we could have the same experience of, of shaking hands and sitting down and having a conversation like you do in someone's office or home or over lunch, if we could have that experience and that there's something that goes on up here when you're with someone that doesn't happen over Zoom. And as soon as that can be cracked, and, and it just becomes normal that this is, this is a normal way that people interact and it's not an exhausting, you know, another exhausting Zoom call. I, I think at that point, things are really gonna change. And it may be this, uh, you know, this VR type of stuff that does it. I, I don't know that it's gonna do it with the, uh, you know, the Facebook ap- avatars, you know, cartoony avatars with no legs. But at some point, um, this will graduate from Atari to the Xbox and it'll be exciting.
0: I think that's well said. And while there are definitely constraints to Zoom, we've also heard countless stories like you shared around stewardship or the ability to include a dean or the president or yeah. someone in the conversation who realistically never could have traveled or we couldn't have yeah. gotten schedules to align Have you experienced that in your role or what have you done? Yeah, Absolutely.
1: And in fact, I'll take credit for this whole Zoom thing that's happened, by the way. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure we invented it at Auburn Engineering. Um, We had uh, we had an event up in D.C. one time with a group of people and our dean at the last minute couldn't catch the flight. I don't remember what happened, but he called and he was like, I can't I can't be there. And we were already in D.C. We were at uh, I I think the. Uh, Raytheon, you know, headquarters in a in a in a ballroom, and we were set up, and the dean wasn't going to make it, and we were like, what are we going to do? Are we going to cancel? We got like thirty people coming, and so we decided, you know what, we're going to do. We're going to use technology. The university just signed some contract with this company called Zoom. We've never used it, but we'll try it, you know. And we created this thing. We called it Dean in a Box, and we did this at Exxon. We did we did it all over the country where we would have our dean zoom in. We'd put him up on the screen and we would point the camera monitor out to the audience and they could listen to the engineering dean talking to him over this cool technology. And then they could come up afterward and sit at the computer and have a private chat with him just like this. And we just called it Dean in a Box and we did it all over the country. And it was awesome because he didn't have to leave his job, fly across the country to go do these, uh, these development meetings. And people loved it because it was different. Right. It wouldn't be different today, but it was different in 2018, 2019 when
0: we were doing that. I love it. And, uh, you know, kudos for giving it a shot early because that's the kind of idea that oftentimes can get shot down. And, you know, it was uh, done out of we necessity.
1: Had yeah, we, but, we yeah. Had, it was necessity. Right. So, yeah. So it's amazing what you can do when you don't have any other choice. <laughs>
0: And so, as you think about uh, where you are today at New Mexico State, I know you all are are in a unique position where you're hiring like you're hiring hiring like crazy. That's not that common right now. So, why is it that at this moment, New Mexico State is in that privileged position?
1: Well, uh, when I got here, we had a number of positions open, so uh, we've been we've been filling those. I think I've hired eleven or twelve people since I got here. Um, maybe only two or three of them have I actually been able to met before we, you know, kind of virtually shook hands over Zoom. It's been, it's been remote hiring. Um, we've even hired a couple of people that didn't live here that lived in, in Albuquerque or, or other places. And um, so going forward, you know, we have a staffing plan and a, and a budget model that's going to allow us to grow. Uh, we renegotiated our, our operating agreement with the university, uh, changed our entire funding model, um, made some made some commitments to them from the fundraising side, and um, and so it's allowing us to you know to grow our budget went up quite a bit this year, and, uh, and we were able to fund a lot of positions that we didn't have in the past. We're building out an entire advancement marketing communications team that didn't exist. Uh, really growing our major gift uh, fundraising team. Um, we had a lot of assets on the operations side that we've been able through technology and and other uh, changes we've been able to really get a lot more efficient and and lean on that side so we can reinvest those resources on the either external relations or the development side and so we've just ended up with uh, i think we've got sixteen positions open right now that we need to hire uh, as soon as we possibly can and uh, it's going to be exciting it's about a third of our workforce and so we're going to be able to um, you know, kind of implement this this cultural change that we've been uh, planning for over the over the past year, you
0: know, pretty quickly. Very exciting, Derek. And we will make sure to share uh, those postings uh, with our with our community for sure. Awesome. Um, tell me a little bit about um, just relationships you've built in the sector, mentors or peers who you think highly of. That's one of the beauties of the space is how tight knit it is. And who are some it of the is. people that you've really come to respect? Yeah. Yeah, I, I started building a, a, that circle
1: when I was in engineering back at A&M. We would go to the engineering development forum. It's a national, well, it's international, really. We've got a number of schools from, from Canada that come. Uh, an international conference of of engineering schools and their development teams. And so I would go to that. Uh, when I got to Auburn, I'd take you know my whole staff, if we could. Uh, I took my dean. We presented jointly one time. Uh, we were going to host at Auburn. Uh, we were supposed to host in June of of 2020, and of course that that got canceled. But I served on their board, and so through that, I got a I, I've managed to build a circle of, of folks that are in in leadership roles all over the country. Some of them still in engineering. Some of them have gone on to to other roles. Um, and I'll call anybody who'll answer the phone. Greg Greg Willems at KSU, uh, Kansas State's been a great uh, a great mentor for me. Uh, I, I followed him into engineering at A&M, so a lot of the donors that I had, I, I was able to experience success because Greg had taken such good care of them uh, when, when he was there, and uh, he went off and, and served in a few VP um, uh, Foundation president roles and is at Kansas State now, and so I've called Greg up a lot. I said, hey, man, I just need to I need to bounce something off of you or I need to learn, you know, what would you do in this situation? And uh, I called up my old uh, foundation president at, at AM, doctor Ed Davis. He's he's retired at this point, but I actually hired him onto a consulting contract to help me with this uh, negotiation for the new memo of understanding with the university. And I knew that he had served on the board with, um, um, H-E-B back in the early 2000s that put together the model MOU that's now been used by hundreds of universities. And so brought, brought Ed in and, and he really helped me to navigate that process with the, the regents and my foundation board. And you know, I guess Jane Parker and I talk, reg, uh, talk on a regular basis. And I've just got a great circle um, of people that are willing to, to help and help me learn from uh, mistakes that they've made or, or just with general guidance.
0: It's a good reminder of the importance of not just the donor relationships, but the peer relationships, the dean relationships that really um, are critical as we, as we advance our work. I, I want to ask, as we conclude here, um, you've got a specific point of view on technology. It's been a common thread as we've had this conversation. But we did ask you if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the advancement sector, what would it be? And you had a very specific answer.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, everywhere I've been, we've had issues, I think, with technology at the at the foundation and the university communicating well with each other. And, uh, you know, to try to wrap a bow around this, if there was a way that your foundation systems, your, your funds, um, your donor funds that you've raised this money and created, if it could talk uh, in a seamless way with the foundation systems that they use to award that money and spend it, and then if you could capture what they used it for and the impact that it made, translate that back to your donors, um, we'd be able to be a lot more effective at what we do. We we, we raise money, uh, we put it in some fund, we make it available to the university, we hope they use it. Uh, lots of times if it's not scholarships, especially if it's unrestricted money, we may have no idea what they used it for and what impact it made. And But that's the flavor of money that your university partners most want. They most covet that unrestricted money, but stewarding it is harder than any other flavor of money. And so, you know, that's something that's been a bit of a passion for me. We've got a a little kernel of a home built software system here at NMSU that I think has some promise, you know, to maybe for the first time uh, with my peer group that I talk to, you know, try to try to crack that particular problem I know some universities have built their own kind of home-baked system, but there's not anything commercially that we've found that solves this problem. And so that you know that, that's that's kind of got my entrepreneurial juices uh, flowing a little bit. And uh, I think it could be uh, uh, a big benefit for this industry if we could figure out how to do it and have all these various systems talking to each other and use the money for what you raised it for and then communicate that benefit, uh, that impact that it made back to the donor.
0: Seems simple. Seems like it should exist. I have no doubt we will discuss it again in the future, uh, Derek. And I just want to say thank you for taking time out of your schedule. And uh, on the spectrum of Zoom calls, I really enjoyed this one. And uh, I know that our audience will enjoy getting a window into your world and your journey. Uh, Any closing thoughts as uh, we wrap up today?
1: I appreciate the opportunity. I've enjoyed this podcast. I listen to it on a regular basis when I'm out jogging and it's uh, a, it's, it's a great thing you're doing here. You've got a great company and I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Thanks Derek. Uh, It's a great community. We're glad to be a part of it. And so with that uh, I will let Derek get back to the important work that he's doing at the New Mexico state university foundation. And with that Brent here signing off on the Rays podcast. Take care everybody.